You're listening to TIP. That's kind of the theory, right? Is that you can buy condos much cheaper, but then once you roll it up, you get rid of the HOA fee, you lower expenses, you run it as an apartment efficiently, you fix the CapEx, you fix the deferred maintenance, you upgrade it. Now you can run it as an apartment building and sell it on a cap rate. You kind of win. In this week's episode, I talk with Barrett Lindbergh all about investing in multifamily real estate and opportunity zone investing. Barrett is a co-founding partner of Savoy Equity Partners and oversees the capitalization and structuring of the company's investments along with deal sourcing. Born and raised in Dallas, he has spent 17 years in the real estate industry crossing multiple product types and service lines. Barrett started investing in real estate in 2012 and enjoys learning about esoteric strategy, which can be implemented to create excellent risk-adjusted returns. He has owned over a thousand multifamily units and specializes in transactions with complex structures such as historic tax credits, opportunity zones, low income restrictions, as well as the deconversion of fractured condos. Prior to his work on the principal side of the business, Barrett worked as a mortgage broker. He primarily arranged debt financing for multifamily properties, but also triple net properties, hotels, and owner user spaces. Real estate is already a tax-advantaged asset class, but when you couple it with opportunity zones, it can be even better. I also learned about deconversions of condos in this episode from Barrett. I had heard of buying small apartments and turning them into condos, but not the other way around, so I thought that was really interesting to learn about. I hope you guys learn as much from this episode as I did. And now, without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode with Barrett Lindbergh. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I am your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Barrett Lindbergh. Barrett, welcome to the show. Hey, Robert. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Your firm is vertically integrated by working with a property management company called Indio Residential. I've seen a lot of larger real estate firms bring their property management in-house or even create their own property management business. What made you choose the model you have with Indio Residential and how has it impacted your business? To understand how we ended up here, you have to kind of step back. I've been in the business a long time, almost 17 years, and my business partner, a similar amount of time. We actually, at one point, if you go back long enough, we were competitors. We were chasing the same deals around Dallas and we would show up and look at the same 10 and 15 unit buildings and we would give each other the evil eye. And then a couple of years later, I was a commercial mortgage broker and we got introduced in a friendlier way and he became one of my clients. And then he owned uh, and still owns Indio Residential and I became one of his clients. Then after a couple of years later, we said, Hey, this is kind of dumb. We're still kind of competing for deals. So about five years ago, we started partnering on, on deals unofficially. Instead of giving each other the evil eye as we bid against each other, we said, Hey, let's tag team this one. We'll go raise equity together. We'll throw some money into an LLC. We'll raise a little money from friends and family. And this deal we're going to do together. I would do the mortgage brokerage. She would do the property management. And it was a good fit. And we had some really good wins, but it was, hey, one or two deals a year. And what that turned into was I was making more money on the side on these deals than I was as a mortgage broker. And so I kind of stopped doing that. And at the same time, his property management company had really grown. We started this business called Savoy Equity Partners, which really focuses on the property investment. And it naturally fit uh, next to his property management business, which has grown now to almost 20,000 units under management. So that's how the vertical integration happened. And it was a much more natural fit than some other groups that have said, you know, hey, this is our firm. We do all our business with them. And now we're vertically integrated. Whereas this is, hey, the, the principal of one firm is also the principal of the other firm. So are you paying a property management fee to them yeah. or is it just through equity in the deal? And they're two totally separate companies. 
Yes, there are fees that go back and forth between the two because there's employees of both companies that have to eat. Yeah. So you can't just do equity. You can't just give the property management company equity in the deals because then you can't pay your employees, correct? That's right. Yeah. There's a bonus pool for the Indio employees and that bonus pool invests in the deals and they participate in the upside. So they're incentivized to do a great job. And then the Savoy folks are obviously reliant on the Indio folks for data, for execution. And we're also able to be on top of them for asset management and make sure that everything gets done correctly to the business plan. Your firm, Savoy Equity Partners, focuses on acquiring properties in the Sunbelt region of the US with a specific focus on DFW, Houston, and North Carolina. Why'd you choose those markets? And how do you pick and analyze markets that you want to acquire properties in? A bit of that is aspirational. To date, everything that we own is in DFW. Indio has expanded with some of their clients who have bought a critical mass of deals in Houston and in North Carolina. What Savoy will likely do in the future is take the data that Indio is gathering in Houston and in North Carolina, use that data to create a business plan, and use the people that Indio is putting into those markets to say, all right, well, now Indio has enough people, has enough data in those markets. Let's use that to our advantage. Let's create a business plan in those markets and go do what we've been doing in Dallas for 15 years in another market once we know it well enough and once we feel like we have the confidence to succeed somewhere else. So are you only willing to go into markets where Indio is? Maybe. I think we're only willing to go into markets where we feel like we have an edge. And in Dallas, we feel like we know that we have an edge. If somebody brings me a deal in where I was born and raised and where I've done business for so long, I can look at that deal and in 30 seconds, I can underwrite it and say, yep, that's it. Here's my LOI. Here's what I'm willing to pay. Let's go right now. And in other markets, I do not have that level of confidence. So does that edge in Dallas just come from your experience, like you said, living there, growing there, knowing the market so well and having the property management? Or is there more to it than just that? Yeah, I think it's all the above, right? And it's a lot of muscle memory. And just knowing like we signed four leases at a property down the street and last week, and here's what the rents were. And so I can use those rents in my underwriting. Or we just renovated the property in that same submarket or one submarket over. And the cost to do a gut renovation were X on a similar vintage property. And so now I can apply that for my underwriting. So you have all those numbers that are already kind of in your head. And so it's very easy to apply that when you do an unlevered yield on cost. Whereas in another market, the labor is different, right? Maybe it's union labor, or maybe you don't have the same vendors to sell you the materials, right? You don't have the pricing power, or you just don't know the rents as well. You know, it's on the wrong side of the street or on the wrong side of the highway or whatever. And so I think you learn that over time. Not that you can't go into a new market and learn it pretty quickly if you really dig in. But it takes a little bit. I'm sure being in Dallas for as long as you have, I'm sure you've built quite a few relationships. And being a mortgage broker, that's all relationship business. So I'm sure you've have have some relationships there. How big of an edge does that give you as well? I think it's all interconnected, right? Yes, mortgage brokerage is really good for building banking relationships, building relationships with principals, building relationships with real estate brokers. And then my business partner, right on the property management side, it's the same thing. A ton of vendor relationships, a ton of principal relationships. All of that has made our Rolodex pretty enormous. And that works very well. How are you competing in Dallas? I know, I know we just talked about how you have an edge, and I'm sure that's a component of it. But the reality is that I've read that Dallas is a really competitive market and there's a lot going on there right now. So I'm just curious, how are you competing? How are you finding deals that make sense and fit into your portfolio? So we've always kind of underwritten deals the same way, which going back to when we kind of bought our first deals in 2012 is unlevered yield on cost, which I talk with investors about, talk about you know, on social media. And what that is, you're looking at, hey, when I stabilize this deal, what's my return if I were to have bought it all cash, which we don't end up doing, but just so I can compare every deal the same way. If I paid all cash for it, what would my return be once it's done? So by doing that, I can look at every deal I've, I've bought in the last 10 years and say, what was my unlevered yield on cost? When you do that, you say, man, 10 years ago, it was really easy to buy a deal. 
right? The market was easier. There was less competition. There was more lower hanging fruit. And brokers were just slinging deals and, and throwing them at you, right? And then as you fast forward a couple of years, it got harder. More people were coming into Dallas. The more people were moving here and more investors were coming here. So it got harder. We had to adapt to that because we were unwilling to say, well, we were underwriting 250 or 200 basis points over what we thought prevailing cap rates were. And so now we're willing to accept a lower profit margin. No, we weren't happy doing that because we'd had this cushion for a long time. What did we do? Well, we had to venture into different strategies. So we tried a couple. We tried historic tax credits. Well, that worked really well, but it's pretty complicated. And that's okay. We kind of like complicated. The bigger problem was there aren't many old buildings in Dallas. So we couldn't really scale that model. We tried another thing called fractured condo deconversions. That's also really complicated. And we might go back to that because it is a little bit more scalable. It's just harder when the market's really hot. There aren't as many opportunities. Then we kind of got into opportunity zones. They came out in you know, 2017, 2018 is when the rumbling started. And then you really got definitive guidance in 2020 from the IRS. And that's when we dug into opportunity zones and we bought our first portfolio in 2020. And what we realized quickly is, hey, not only does this fit very well with what we do, it also is very scalable. And that's when we had the realization that, hey, this is for us because we can buy deals that maybe don't fit the hurdle rate without any subsidy. But if you have that additional tax incentive, all of a sudden we can hit our numbers and we can do a lot of deals. And so that's kind of been what we focused on for the last two years. We're going to talk about opportunity zones in just a second, but I want to I want to learn a little bit more about that condo strategy that you mentioned. I don't I don't think I've ever heard of it. Can you break that down for us? Yeah, there's a couple guys on Twitter who do it and we've done one deal as well and like a lot of the stuff that we've done, we accidentally got into it. We weren't planning on doing it at first, but in Florida, in Illinois and in Texas, there's legislation which says Hey, if, if you own 80% and that percentage varies between states and municipalities, but if, if you own more than 80% of an HOA, then you can judicially force the sale of the remaining 20% of the HOA and terminate it, which obviously you can imagine can be a little messy. But with things like that condo building collapsing recently in Florida, because the HOA had not invested properly in capital improvements and fixing deferred maintenance, You can kind of understand the rationale behind it, right? What you can do is go in and buy a 1960s or 70s or 80s condo building that is kind of falling apart. The owners haven't spent the money necessary to keep it up. And so you go in, you can buy 80% of the units, and then you can force the sale of the remaining 20%. Now you own the whole thing. You turn it into an apartment building. And you sell it on a cap rate rather than, you know, as a condo, which is based on a price per square foot. And there's generally a spread there to be made once you do it. At the most basic level, you're buying a value add apartment deal, but you can buy it cheap. That's interesting because I kind of would have expected that the cost of the condos would have just been so high given that they're valued on a comparable basis. And I just assumed that the cost would have been really high on a per unit basis. So I didn't think it would make sense as a rental. And I didn't think really that the cap rates would be enough. I didn't think your return on the cap rate would be enough to cover the cost of the the units. You have to find the right one for sure. And then the market has to kind of be set up for it. And so, as I mentioned, over the past couple of years, it hasn't quite worked out right, especially with debt being so cheap for the retail buyer. And I mean, in Dallas, right, there's been no inventory of single family and many markets in the country. And so, all of a sudden, people are willing to pay a lot of money for condos. Yeah, that arbitrage hasn't really been there. Will it be there over the next couple of years? Yeah, I think that there's a possibility it will be. One of the interesting things is that with condos, typically the value, let's just say you have a two or three bedroom condo and you have a two or three bedroom single family house, typically all else equal, the condo is going to be worth a little bit less because of the HOA fee. So when you look at what a retail buyer can afford, 
they can afford a lower price condo because they also have to take into consideration that HOA. So I wonder if that's a component that kind of keeps condo values a little bit suppressed so that you can come in and buy it. And then once you get rid of the HOA, you're good to go from there. That's kind of the theory, right? Is that you can buy condos much cheaper, but then once you roll it up, you get rid of the HOA fee, you lower expenses, you run it as an apartment efficiently, you fix the CapEx, you fix the deferred maintenance, you upgrade it. Now you can run it as an apartment building and sell it on a cap rate. You kind of win. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've actually, I've heard of the other kind of approaches where you buy an apartment building and then you condo, yeah. I think it's called condoizing it and you basically yeah. just turn them all into condos. So I've, I've heard of that approach, but I hadn't heard of this one. Do you think one is better than the other? Well, no, they both work, right? It's just which market, what's your product, what's your business plan? I think based on what you said is there's only a couple states that you can do the way where you buy them as condos and then turn them into apartments. But I don't think there's as much limitations on buying apartment buildings and turning them into condos. I could be wrong, but I don't think that's probably right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just, you just have to get the approval to make that happen. One of the things you were talking about is the unlevered yield on cash UYOC. How is that different than NOI? How is that different than looking at like your return with your NOI? Unlevered yield on cost is really simple. But it's also really simple to manipulate if you screw it up. Unlevered yield on cost is, hey, I want to know every single dollar that it costs me from the time that I buy it to the time that it gets stabilized. I'm looking at what's my purchase price, what's my cost to buy it, right? my closing costs and things like that. What does it cost me to carry it? What are my property taxes? You know, What are my utilities in the interim? all that stuff. So what are my purchase price, my closing costs, my carry costs, and then my renovation costs. So I've got all that stuff built in. As you can imagine, it's fairly easy to manipulate, especially carry costs and very especially renovation costs. Because one person from out of the market might say, well, hey, I'm going to renovate that building for 20,000 bucks a unit. And then somebody who really knows what they're doing might say, you can't do that for 20,000 a unit. That thing's going to cost you 40,000 a unit every day. That's what it costs. And so that's pretty easy to manipulate. But that's how you calculate it, right? You say, what are all of my costs to do this deal? So that's number one. That's your denominator. Now, how do you figure out your numerator? Well, your numerator is your NOI after it's stabilized. You're going to look at what are my rents. In order to figure out your rents, you need to understand your submarket. What are two bedrooms running for? What are ones? What are studios? Need to understand all that. And then, and that's easy to manipulate, by the way, (laughs) right? And then you need to understand your expenses. Once I have a stabilized building, what are my utilities going to be? Insurance. In Texas, taxes are a huge number. How are those going to be readjusted after acquisition and after renovation? So you go through and figure out, number one, what your cost is going to be, number two, your rents, and number three, your expenses to get your NOI. And then ultimately, unlevered yield on cost is just NOI divided by your total cost in the deal. So it's a very simple calculation that's very easy to screw up. But once you have it, then you're able to figure out what's my yield going to be if I were to have paid all cash. Because notice, I didn't ever mention financing. I didn't ever mention interest rates or or anything like that. So it allows me to look at a deal, whether it's 2021 and and 2% debt is available, or whether it's 2022 and bridge debt is 6 or 7%, it doesn't matter. So are you including the entire purchase price in your denominator? Yeah, the purchase price and the renovation costs and the closing costs and the carry costs and everything that it costs me to get all the way to a stabilized building. So, because I was going to say, it sounds very similar to what I use as cash on cash, but in my cash on cash calculations, I don't include the purchase price as a cost of actually acquiring the property. From there, right, once you've done all that math, it's very easy to then go in and say, all right, well, now I'm going to use this type of debt. What's my cash on cash return if I use that type of debt? What's my DSCR? Well, I can throw that in. You know, so you can do a whole bunch of math after that. But I always start with unlevered yield on cost because then I can say, well, how does that look compared to the deal I did down the street? How does that look now compared to the cap rates that buildings are selling at in the area? How does that look compared to the debt that I can get? That's just keep beating the same drum, right? (laughs) That's just the math that I use. 
And I know there's a bunch of other guys who do the same thing. And I think it's just, it's the easiest way to underwrite. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. So what happens if you compare two deals on this metric? Let's just say they're both a 10% return. But then one, you can get financing at, like you said, 2%. And then now today, because you get that a couple of years ago, now today you're getting it at 6 7%. When you look at that net cash flow, if you really look at the profitability of those deals, they are not equal, even though on the unlevered yield on cost, they are. So how do you consider that? The way that we typically are looking at deals is we're saying, hey, we want the unlevered yield on cost to have a very comfortable spread over what we believe either market cap rates are today for a stabilized building or what we believe the market interest rate would be once we go to refinance that deal. If you say, hey, I want my for an apartment building in Dallas, right? If I say, hey, I want my unlevered yield on cost to be seven and a half, okay? Well, why would you choose seven and a half? Well, maybe I think that the market cap rate for that same deal is going to be five. All right, well, now I have a two and a half percent development spread. Well, that feels pretty good, right? I'm going to make a bunch of money if both of those numbers come true. So that's great. Now, the next question is what are interest rates going to be if I decide I want to hold it and refinance it? Well, if interest rates are five, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be able to do a big cash out refinance and and everybody's going to be happy. If interest rates go to seven, well, I'm going to be able to refinance, but I'm not going to be able to pull a whole bunch of cash out. I'll still be happy. I'll still have positive leverage, but not a hell of a lot. And so you just have to think of it in those terms. Yes, I can use unlevered, unlevered yield on costs to look apples to apples at deals. But I have to use that metric in today's environment to compare that deal to where do I think cap rates and interest rates will be once that deal is stabilized. Can you use this approach and metric on really any size deal? Could you do it on a six or seven unit deal as the same you would with a hundred unit? Absolutely. And how are you how are you acquiring these and doing the I guess the renovation phase? Are you using hard money, bridge debt, and then going to do that refinance on the back end? 
Yeah. So we're using local bank relationships, regional bank relationships, and it's kind of the same as we've always done it. I would say the big difference in today's market is we're using lower leverage than we ever have, and we're using non-recourse. So we closed one last week that was at 60% loan to cost, so purchase price and renovation expenses, and it was it was a non-recourse deal. It was also a fixed rate deal, which historically our renovation loans have been floaters. And now we've been able to find some banks that are willing to do them at fixed rate for three years with extension options. And you know, I think that that feels better, right? We're hedged against these three-quarter point increases by the Fed. And so that feels good. And then we'll see you know, if in 24 months, everything's cut back to zero. I think I'll still be happy that I, that I had, uh, had a fixed rate deal. Could you refinance out if rates drop? Yeah, at least the last two that I've done did not have prepayment penalties. And so it, it was kind of the, the perfect loan. I don't know that I'll continue being able to get them, but the last two were pretty nice. Yeah. I mean, you're protecting yourself, like you said, on the upside from a, what, 75 basis points increased yesterday to yeah. refinance out on the downside if, if rates drop. So it sounds like, like you said, a pretty perfect loan. Earlier, you mentioned opportunity zones. I know you're doing a bit there. I want to talk a bit about that. Real estate is already considered to be one of the better tax advantage asset classes that you can invest in. But when you bring in opportunity zones, it can be an even better asset class for tax advantages. And opportunity zones are something that you talk a lot about on Twitter. You mentioned you've done some deals. So for those listening who haven't heard of opportunity zones, break down what they are, how they work, and then tell us how they're different from a 1031 exchange. This is going to go into the weeds. So everybody, you know, take an extra sip of coffee. And also when I really go into this, I'm not an accountant. I'm not, <laughs> not an attorney. And some of this stuff, there are severe penalties if you try and do it by yourself and, and you screw it up. So don't do that, please. Yeah. I mentioned, you know, we like to do complicated stuff and, and we're not scared of going down these rabbit holes. As we explore ways to continue to get the yield that we wanted to and to continue to scale our business, we had to explore a lot of different things. So one of those was opportunity zones. We kind of got lucky in that the CPA that we'd always use and the attorney that we'd always use were both early adopters into the opportunity zone legislation. Just kind of lucked into that. Even further, the area, one of the areas in Dallas that we had played in historically had also been designated an opportunity zone. It just kind of worked out that early on we were able to say, Hey, this is going to be a fit. Let's dive in. In 2020, we bought a portfolio of eight deals. It was structured as an OZ deal. And we learned a lot and, and drank through a fire hose. What we had to do was figure out who is this right for? How do we set it up? What does this mean? Like, what are all the advantages? And now we've learned what's our strategy going forward. Let me kind of talk through that one piece at a time. Who is the opportunity zone tax structure right for from an investment perspective? Well, you can only get the tax benefits investing in an OZ deal if you've had a qualified capital gain. That means if you have sold absolutely anything and you had a short or long-term capital gain, then you can invest into opportunity zone deals. If it was in your personal name, like crypto or a stock or something or your house, and it was titled to you personally, then you have 180 days to make the investment. That's very simple. If you were invested in someone else's deal or invested in like a corporation or whatever, and you get a K1 for that, then you have a whole lot longer to make the investment. You can either do it 180 days from when the gain happened, or you can do it 180 days from March 15th, from when the K1 is first due. I mean, theoretically, somebody could have had a gain in January of 2021 and doesn't have to make the investment until September of 2022. So there's this really long window to make the investment. I'll pause there, Robert. I know I just spat out a bunch of stuff. Can you only invest the money that came from the capital gain? Yes. And what designates an opportunity zone? I've, I've, seen, I've done a little bit of research into like where opportunity zones are in my area. I guess I don't really know exactly what are they looking for that makes something an opportunity zone? Opportunity zones were... So the program was federally created, right? So by federal legislation. 
with that federal legislation, they gave a mandate to all 50 governors and including, I think, the governor of Puerto Rico and all these American territories. And they gave a mandate to all these governors and said, hey, you now have the job within your own state or territory to create the opportunity zone areas. And those are census tracts. So they had to be low income or low income adjacent. So it was like this pretty vague language. And the governor of each state got to choose where they go. So if anyone out there says, well, hey, that area is an opportunity zone and it really shouldn't be, the bone to pick that you have is with the governor at the time in 2017. But that's how they were designated. There's 8,600 of them throughout the country. And some of them are in, you know, very needy parts of the country. And, and others, frankly, probably shouldn't exist, right? They're in areas that maybe are pretty high income, but they got designated when they shouldn't have. And that designation of low income or low income adjacent was based off of the 2010 census data. So you can imagine you've got 2010 census data, then you have maybe politically motivated people using that data in 2017 to figure out who should get tax advantages. And, and you can imagine the process was better some places than others. Well, yeah. And you think 10, 2010, I mean, that's just coming out of a pretty bad time yeah. here in the US. I think, and I could be wrong, but I think Puerto Rico got quite a bit of opportunity zones, didn't they? Isn't a lot of Puerto Rico right now an opportunity zone? Mostly, be, I think it because is. of the natural disasters, right? Yeah, and it's almost all of Puerto Rico. And it's interesting. I've talked to a handful of people in Puerto Rico, and the folks who live there can't really take advantage of it because of their tax status. And so really, for someone to take advantage of the OZ census tracts in Puerto Rico, they have to be Americans. I mean, Puerto Ricans are American, but they have to be mainland people who then take their money and invest in the Puerto Rican Opportunity Zones. It's interesting the way that the tax code kind of views the Puerto Rican opportunity zones. Are you an opportunity zone fund or do you just have, is your company have different smaller funds inside and, and those different funds might be opportunity zones? Yeah. So we have an interesting structure and I'll kind of keep going on, on how this works. I mentioned you kind of have these 180 day clocks, right? So all of those clocks are to invest into an opportunity zone fund. All you have to do if, say, you sold some stock right at the beginning of the year and it was in your name, you just have to invest into an Opportunity Zone fund. What do you get from doing that? Well, if you sold in January, you would owe tax next April. Now, by investing in an Opportunity Zone fund, you don't owe tax next April. You owe your tax in April of 2027. So that's your first big benefit. Your next big benefit is... By investing in an OZ fund, whatever that fund invests into, if they hold it for 10 years, you're not going to owe capital gains tax on that investment. So that's a huge benefit. And then the, the final benefit, which never really makes the headlines, and it should because it's enormous, is the OZ fund's investment, once it's depreciated, you're going to get those losses on a K-1. But when the OZ fund sells its stuff, it never has to recapture the depreciation. On your normal real estate investments on all mine, right? That's always a pain because it's like, oh, I've enjoyed all these losses you know, over the whole period. I got, to, I got all these write-offs. But then you sell it and it's like, wait, I have to recapture all those, all those wonderful losses? But in an OZ investment, you never have to. So that's enormous. You can do bonus depreciation, you know, cost seg and bonus depreciation, and you get to write all those losses off against your, your income. And then you never have to pay the piper. That is massive. I have two properties that I'm looking at selling. One of them has not a lot of depreciation yet. So I'm not really too worried about the recapture, but there's one that has yep. a lot of depreciation already. So I'm, I'm pretty worried about that recapture, to be honest, if I sell it this year. So yeah, I think that's yeah. a, an enormous benefit. But so back to your question, you kind of said, do I have an OZ fund? The answer is yes. But the way that we structure our deals is very interesting. One of the ways that an OZ fund... So an OZ fund has to put their money out every year. And they have to invest in qualified opportunity zone property, which is a lot of times it's real estate, but it can also be what's called a qualified opportunity zone business. What we've chosen to do is create a qualified opportunity zone business, which is basically where we syndicate our deals is in a qualified opportunity zone business, which is just a type of LLC with some special language. And our pref and our promote and everything, all the, all the language is at the qualified opportunity zone business. And then that business 
takes investment from a whole bunch of qualified opportunity zone funds. Because what we found is a lot of really smart people, family offices, and, and just wealthy guys created their own qualified opportunity zone funds. We wanted to be able to take money from all these qualified opportunity zone funds. You know, if you've got the Robert Leonard Qualified Opportunity Zone Fund because you made a bunch of money last year, then you could invest into our Qualified Opportunity Zone business. That's how we structured our stuff. Now, there's a lot of other investors. They sold stock in January and they want to invest with us, but they don't want to set up their own Opportunity Zone Fund. And so we set up an Opportunity Zone Fund as well that doesn't have any fees, it doesn't have any prep, it doesn't have any promote. Its sole purpose is to invest into our Opportunity Zone business. Our deals end up having anywhere from 8 to 15 Opportunity Zone funds investing into them. It sounds super complicated, but it's meant to just like be a fairly simple way to comply with these pretty difficult rules. Are all those different funds considered captives? No. The ones that are started by individuals, right? So like the Robert Leonard family OZ fund, that would be a captive OZ fund. But we have funds that are, you know, have multiple people in them. There's one that has two fathers and sons that invest together, right? Then we have like a quasi-institutional fund that, that invested with us. So they went out and raised money from a couple hundred people, and then they allocate money. So there's a, a handful of different types of funds that we see out there in the world, and they've got money to put out. Can individuals do this on a smaller scale? Like, could somebody go buy a duplex, a triplex, even maybe like a five or six unit and still take advantage of opportunity zones? Or do you have to be a bigger fund or buy bigger? No, you absolutely can. What I'll tell you is I have now, after being in this world for two years, right? And being public about it on social media, I've talked to a lot of people who do it. And what I found is it is not a DIY space, right? But some people treat it that way. And the problem is, as I mentioned earlier, like there's these severe tax implications for getting it wrong. And you might not find out that you screwed up until you sell in year 10. And so you'll get down the road and you'll think, man, I'm a genius. I made a million bucks. I'm not paying any taxes. And then you get that dreaded IRS letter. And it's like, oh, crap. Not only do I not get the benefits, I owe penalties. Because I didn't pay my taxes back in 2022 when I should have. And my concern, whether it's going to come true or not, I don't know. My concern is that there's a lot of people who are either trying to do it themselves or are just very loosely following the guidance from a CPA or or an attorney that they might not get it right. I think the shorter answer is, yes, someone can do it to flip a house or a duplex or whatever. But they really should seek the guidance of an expert because the stuff's complicated and the penalties are severe. Yeah, I was going to say, to just kind of put it simply, is you can do it with these smaller deals. You just have to have the right team of professionals and legal help to make sure you're following all the guidelines. But other than that, yes. I mean, you can do it with those deals. I know there's some interesting and important dates coming up over the next few years related to Opportunity Zone Fund deadlines. Talk to us a bit about what those deadlines are, when they're coming up, and just break down that, that whole idea for us. I mean, the hope is that some of them get extended. There's some pending legislation. I'll kind of ignore that because none of it's happened yet. So here's what exists right now. So you can continue deferring taxes by putting money into an Opportunity Zone fund through the end of 2026. As it gets closer to that date, you get less deferral. So earlier, I mentioned, hey, you sold some stock, you put money into an OZ fund, you owe your taxes in April of 2027. Well, You can imagine, as you get closer to the end of 2026, a deferral until April 2027 doesn't mean as much to you, right? That benefit gets less important the further down the road we get. But it continues to exist and you continue to be able to put money into an OZ fund for the next four and a half years. And really, the whole point of that is you want to get the long-term hold benefit. I can buy real estate and I can hold it for 10 years. And when I sell it, I don't recapture depreciation and I don't pay capital gains when I do sell it. That's the biggest benefit of the deal. And you still get that. I can put money into the fund through the end of 2026. And now, the, in my opinion, the bigger date is 
I can buy opportunity zone real estate until the end of 2028. And the reason that that date exists is kind of a crazy one when you think about it. The reason is the map, the opportunity zone map that exists right now that you can go Google and look up, it ceases to exist on December 31st, 2028, just like it becomes uncertified. And so if you close on a deal that was in the old opportunity zone in 2029, well, that will not qualify as opportunity zone property. And so you won't be compliant. What is the pending legislation and what do you personally think is going to happen? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but just give me yeah. your thoughts on well, and it's going. No, I mean, I attended virtually the Novogradic conference earlier this year. And, and Novogradic, for anyone who doesn't know, they're like the gold standard of LIHTC deals and Opportunity Zone and all this weird stuff that I love. Like They're the guys who, who do it and they lobby for it. And they're, and they're really, really good. I attended their conference virtually earlier this year. And so what this legislation does is it extends and even like retroactively brings back some of the goodies that sunsetted at the end of 2021, at the end of 2019. It adds back in some benefits of the OZ program. And it also extends the dates that I just talked about. The end of 2026 becomes, I think, the end of 2028. And the end of 2028 becomes the end of uh, 2022. You push these dates out further, and it extends the life of the program. The other thing it does, which I think is good, is it adds reporting requirements. On the tax return that I file now, I don't have to say in very much detail at all, what kind of projects am I doing? I don't have to say, did I create any jobs? I don't have to say, what's my rent per unit now versus what was it before? I don't have to give this detail which really would help IRS, HUD, right? all these different groups speak to, is the Opportunity Zone program successful? Is it doing what it's supposed to be doing? I believe that it is. And I believe that that data would help legislators make an informed decision to extend the program. It was passed as a bipartisan deal. The extension is bipartisan legislation. And I think that it would likely get extended again in a bipartisan way if they had the data to show that it was working. I think that it's all a good thing. Essentially, Republicans like it because it's a tax break and, and Democrats like it because it's helping low-income areas. And you know, so very different reasons that, that people like it, but overall, it works. That's kind of what's going on. Novogratic is handicapping this deal and saying it's likely that it may happen, may get passed in a lame duck session after the midterm elections before Christmas. We'll see. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. That's Airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable 
advanced and dynamically capable one yet and redefine sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. You mentioned LiTech. Do you do any LiTech deals or is that just something you're interested in learning about might come in the future? I went down that rabbit hole about the same time we started doing OZ deals. The bottom line is to do a LiTech deal, you really need like an entire staff that's dedicated to LiTech deals. You need to bring in like full GC team dedicated to that. You need in-house counsel. You need you need a bunch of stuff that's just dedicated for that. On a lot of those deals, you're in the hole a million plus dollars before you're doing a deal, one deal. And it hasn't, uh, hasn't excited me enough yet. If you want to talk about complicated strategies, the oh, high tech stuff is complicated. Some of the financing you can get there though is, is, I don't know how much you went into the financing side of things, but the financing you can get, I've saw some, I was doing some research on some light tech stuff. You can get like upwards of 98% loan to value. So you're talking like oh. 2% down and, and these interesting bond financing, 50, ter- 50 year term. I mean, you're working with the municipalities. It's, it's pretty interesting stuff. No, it's super compelling, right? Because I mean, at face value, you say, well, man, I can own this asset and I, you know, the cap stacks all the way up. I put a thousand dollars in and I can own a $50 million deal. But then you say, but wait, before that, I have to put up two million bucks, and it might not close. And then, like you said, the team you need. I mean, it's just so complicated. Oh. You do need the team. There's a lot of concern. I'm sure you're you're aware in the U.S. right now about a recession. And when it specifically comes to real estate, people are worried about rising interest rates and inflation. When you take a step back and you look at the markets, what are you thinking? Are you worried? Are you excited? Where do you think we're heading? Number one, I mean, there's pain right now, right? Across everybody. I mean, the consumer, our buddies, like investors, I mean, there's pain. Rates go up and there's pain. Things get more expensive. Housing's more expensive. There's pain and, and that's not fun. Leave, leave that there. I think as far as from an investment perspective, what do I see happening? I don't try and make macroeconomic guesses. That's not what I do. I do like to listen to other smart people and then try and kind of pick, hey, what do I hear and what makes the most sense to me? So a couple of very smart economists recently have kind of said, hey, they think that rates in the short term will continue going up probably higher than anyone expects to try and fight inflation. And that will cause more of a recession, right? Uh, More of an economic decline. And then after that, rates will probably drop faster than anyone expects. This was like an hour long talk that they gave. And I found it on YouTube and, and I posted it on, on my Twitter. But um, that his talk really rang true to me. And he gave it 90 days ago. And like half the stuff he said already came true $125 oil and, and all this stuff. I think that that really rings true to me. And so, what does that mean? I think it means for me, number one, like it's okay to continue to do what we do, right? I don't think we're going to have this 10 year or eight year even five-year like prolonged, really hurtful cloud over us. I think that we're going to have a couple years of, of tough time because of high interest rates. So how do we get through that on the investment side? Well, we underwrite deals with really good yield on costs that, that make sense that we can lever with fixed rate debt and get through. If we can find those deals, then we, as in my team, should buy them. And sometimes that's scary. Because I say that to myself, and then I'll be presented a deal next week, and I'll say, man, I don't know that I can do this. Will I be able to raise the equity? Like, What's going to happen in the world? Can I pull the trigger? And I think you, I'm speaking to myself, right? Can I pull the trigger when I have that good deal in front of me? And I know that, that that's hard. And I just have to remind myself, like that is my investment thesis. And if I have the cushion that I need, and I have the fixed rate debt, and, and things are hedged, and I believe that this is not going to be a, a five or four, or whatever, a long-term economic problem, then I need to do what I've always done and, and pull the trigger on those good deals. And that's how I look at it. 
Are you underwriting with higher vacancy going forward for a short period of time? Yeah, we've always underwritten like a 7% vacancy and, and Dallas right now is at 3 And we've never underwritten big rent increases either. We've had a lot of upside surprise in our deals recently, but we're kind of underwriting like 3% rent increases going forward. And for under, unlevered yield on costs, we don't underwrite any rent increases between now and stabilization. As we're getting towards the end of this interview, there are two other topics that I want to get to before we wrap up. And the first one is that back in 2015, you did this deal where you signed an LOI for a 116-unit apartment building on the trunk of your car just three hours after it was listed on the MLS. And then 18 months later, you were able to sell it for what you say was a life-changing amount of money. Break down for us how you bought it and how you made that deal work. Every day, I get the MLS listings emailed to my phone. The theory behind it is if a big apartment deal gets listed on MLS, then there's an issue. Either the deal is, is really messed up or a broker is, is dealing with it that shouldn't be or, or there's some problem. I happen to be able to buy like a little 13-unit deal in 2013. And, and I got a good deal on it and it worked out well. And then 2015, 16, I woke up, checked my email, having my coffee, and it, there was a 116-unit deal in a market that I knew, a C-class market, and it was listed for like $2 million. And I said, that does not make sense. I threw on my clothes, started driving. I just headed straight for the property. And it was like 6.45 in the morning. And I started calling the broker. Just like every 15 minutes, I'm calling the broker. Hey, man, where are you? <laughs> and finally, he picked up and he's like, I'm like 45 minutes away. I just woke up. I said, okay, well, I'm in the parking lot. Like, when are you going to get here? <laughs> so finally, he showed up. He's like the buddy of the seller. There were four guys and they'd owned it for a couple of years and they were done with it because they were self managing. They showed up and they walked me around. And I said, great, I'll pay you what you want. I took an LOI, like a draft with some blanks in it with me. And I said, I'll pay you what you want. Then the guy realized that I'm like sitting there giggling to myself, ready to buy it. He said, well, we own the washing machines and we want to get paid for those. And I said, well, how much do you want? And he said, we want 100000 And I said, I'll give you 50 Sign right here. So I paid him 50000 for the washing machines, which they were like, I don't know. They were like a dozen, you know, but I just had to, they were expensive washing machines. Uh, they ended up being cheap, but expensive at the time. I closed the deal right there, got him a contract a couple hours later, and got it tied up. At the time, I certainly did not have the money to close the deal. I knew that I would be able to raise it very quickly because I knew that I was buying it very, I mean, at half price for what it was worth. Just started smiling and dialing with folks who had invested with me before, which at that point was a very small circle of friends and family. Yeah, I got the equity raised, called a couple of bankers. I was a mortgage broker still, so had good banking relationships. And we did a little rehab to it was a class C deal. And and on that, our thesis is like, we need to make this a good, clean, safe place to live that people can have pride of ownership. And and so we were able to do that pretty quickly. We were able to get rents in line with market pretty quickly. Then we sold it for kind of a, a market cap rate. And that turned out to be an enormous windfall. Why are they selling it so cheap? It was one of those situations where you just kind of smile and pay it. I think that they were very sick of it. It was a chiller boiler property. One of the chillers was going out. It was in an area of Dallas called Cockrell Hill. It's a municipality that... It's a city, actually, that's entirely surrounded by Dallas. But it's, it's a small city. They have their own government, their own code compliance. And what we found out later is that the code compliance team down there, which is really just one guy, was kind of all over them. So I think that it had become like a management problem. It had also it needed more money, which I don't know that they had, and they were just ready to go. Do you wish you had held on to that deal till this day? We wrestled with the decision to sell refinance. We took that money and we put it back to work and did well with it. I mean, now that deal is selling. Well, who knows? They did a call for offers two weeks ago, so they probably got retraded. But but the bottom line is, is it's worth double now what we sold it for in, in 2016. That being said, we, we took the money we made and we probably doubled it somewhere else. So I don't regret that. The last thing I want to talk about 
before we wrap up is your creative strategy that you do with water savings on your class B and class C deals where you're not doing a full gut renovation. You say that there are few CapEx items that can provide a better ROI. What is your playbook with this strategy? I certainly don't think we're geniuses here, right? I think maybe we were one of the few groups in Dallas doing it in like 2014. But now I think almost every broker that presents a deal with a water problem is putting that in his offering memo. But essentially, the playbook is when we're under contract, we ask for a year of water bills. We ask for a year of all the utility bills, but specifically water. And we'll look at the math that we do is, what are the gallons used per unit per day? And it allows us to pretty quickly say, hey, if it's more than 200 gallons per unit per day, there is an issue. When we're doing our unit walks, we can look at what kind of toilets do they have? Okay. Well, if they already have small toilets, 1.2 gallon toilets or 0.8 gallon toilets, well, it's probably not that. But if they have big old toilets, well, okay, it might be the toilets. And so then you look at their fixtures. Do they have low flow fixtures on the, on the sinks, on the kitchen sink, bathroom sink, and, and the showers? Well, if they have low flow fixtures, then it's probably not that. But if they're, if they're old ones, again, well, you know that you need to fix those. That's the low hanging fruit, the faucets and the toilets. That's pretty easy. If it's not that, then you've got a harder problem. The next step is the shower manifolds. In the shower bath combo units, which are common in apartment buildings, you have the mixer, right? That's like between the hot and cold water. And especially in old buildings, that thing can get screwed up. And so what will happen is when somebody's taking a shower, it actually is wide open. And so it's almost like trying to send water to the bathtub, but instead it's just shooting straight down the drain. Somebody will take a shower and pull a gallon a minute or two gallons a minute, whatever it is. But that exact same amount of water is going down the drain and nobody notices it. That can be a huge problem. So you have to check all those. And then the last problem is definitely the hardest. If you get lucky, it can be by far the least expensive and the highest ROI thing ever, which is underground leaks. We have a guy on our team who we call the water whisperer. And they have special... um, They'll put on headphones and they can like listen to the ground with a piece of equipment. Listen for running water. And essentially, they're just walking around listening for water. And if they hear it, they'll know, I need to dig for a leak right here. And sometimes it can be like in the middle of a courtyard. Well, that's really cheap and easy to dig up a courtyard. Unfortunately, a lot of the times it's under somebody's bedroom or kitchen or bathroom. And so then they either have to tunnel in from the outside of a building or they have to jackhammer down through a slab foundation which gets a lot more expensive. The biggest one that we've ever found was outside of a building. And it was like a four-inch supply line, like a, a water main almost, that was dumping directly into a storm drain. It was pumping out like five or eight gallons a second into a storm drain. We found it right after we bought the property but we think it had been doing it for a year based on the utility bills that we've been getting. So I mean, do that math. You're talking about hundreds of gallons a minute for a year. Then you cut that out and put it on a five cap. It was like over a million bucks in value to the property just by finding that one leak, which cost $1,000 to fix. That's crazy. I'm guessing you're only going through this trouble on deals where you're paying the water utilities. Or are you finding on most of your deals, you have to pay water in your area? No, yeah. Because look, even if the tenant is paying water through a rubs bill back or whatever, if they're paying that, so if the water bill of the property is 200 grand and you've got 100 units, or, you know, and then you cut that bill to 50 grand, well, that tenant's going to be pretty happy because all of a sudden their monthly budget to spend on groceries or, or car payment or whatever just got bigger. You just put money back in their pocket. They're not necessarily thinking about that the day they move in, but they're certainly thinking about it when it comes time to renew. And so I think it's a big deal. Plus, look, you're saving water. Like everybody's happy. And the landlord's paying usually 15 to 25% of the water bill anyway, even, even if you have a rub system in place. So yeah, it's a good thing. Barrett, we're at the end of the show. I know I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot from you. I know the audience is going to enjoy it as well. I want to give you a second 
to tell everybody that's listening where the best place is to go connect with you, learn from you, and just anywhere they want to find you on the internet. Yeah. Well, Robert, thanks so much for chatting. I enjoyed it. I'm active on Twitter. That's where you can find me. Hopefully soon, I'll I'll post this podcast up there as well as uh, have our website, which will launch very soon up there. And and I just chat a lot. So if anybody wants to chat, please join me on Twitter where I am. And that's uh, at Dallas Apartment GP, Dallas A-P-T-G-P. I'll be sure to put a link to Barrett's Twitter in the show notes below for anybody that's interested in connecting with him. Barrett, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate you joining me. Thanks so much, Robert. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.